You know, when I left Juilliard, I really didn't go back. I, I think I went back for some tests. I left my base in my Juilliard locker, and I never touched it again for 20 years. I left my base, my bow, and my skateboard. This is the After Arts Podcast. My name is Nicholas King. I work on Wall Street as a managing director at a boutique investment firm. But before that, I earned two graduate degrees, one from Oberlin College, another from Juilliard, both in classical piano. And it's weird, right? Because we don't typically think of finance types as pianists or clarinetists or guitarists. But once you start looking, you can find industry leaders across all sectors who grew up with intensive musical training. People like former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, who learned piano from her grandmother. She taught piano lessons, and while my parents were teaching uh, school, I would stay at her house. And my grandmother said, finally, Angelina, my mother's name, let me teach her how to play. I think she wants to learn to play. I was three. When I heard that, I started to wonder, maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe one reason why the Condoleezza Rices of the world are at the top of their fields is because music taught them to think differently, to learn differently, to solve problems differently than their peers. So... I started talking to people about it, and that's how I met Jess Ting. For our purposes, Jess's story starts in the seventh grade. A public junior high school in Astoria, Queens, and back in the day, they still had orchestral programs in public schools. I showed up in class, and it was just a classroom with all these instruments, and Mr. Busty, that was the teacher's name, he was like, okay, uh, Everyone on that side of the room, you play violin. Okay, we need some violists. And you, Ting, you, you're tall. Okay, you're on bass. I remember picking up the bass, and he's like, okay, this is a bow, these are the strings, and he would tune it for me. Somehow, I just really took to it, and I'm like, wow, this, this is fun. And in addition to, like, the class, the music class, I used to go there on lunch break, and I would go there after school and just start playing more and more, maybe like after a year of doing this, I was actually getting pretty good. And I remember telling my brother, you know, I, I've picked up the double bass and I really like it. And he's like, okay, let's, let's go get you a bass. And he was, uh, he was 12 years older than I was. So he was already a resident, a surgical resident, but you know, he came after work and drove me to 45th street where all these music stores were. And they were like, okay, do you have any, any double basses? And they were like, well, you know, we have, we have some used ones upstairs. <laughs> we went upstairs and found um, a plywood base, and I tried it out. And I'm like, okay, this will work. We're like, okay, 350 bucks. And for Windsor, my brother, it was a lot of money, but yeah, he paid for it. We left the store of it, no case, no nothing, just a base, and... We put it in the backseat of his car, and it wouldn't really fit. So we just opened the window and stuck the scroll out of the window and drove home from 45th Street, crossed the uh, 59th Street Bridge back to our home in Queens. So when I had that bass, I just started practicing at home. And I didn't have a teacher, but I would go. We were, like, really poor couldn't afford a teacher, but I would go to the Lincoln Central Library and listen to these records of cello music. Like I remember uh, I would just randomly pick these Vivaldi 
cello sonatas or gamba sonatas, and I would listen to them, and then I would go back and I'd find the cello music, and I would photocopy it. On these, remember these horrible old photocopier machines where they would they would come out smelling of chemicals. Anyway, I would photocopy them and bring the music home, and just listen to the music at the Lincoln Center Library. Then I would go home with the music and just figure out how to play the stuff on the bass. And one of the pivotal experiences was getting into the All City High School Orchestra. And we would we would meet on Saturdays, rehearse every Saturday, and I just that was like the highlight of my week. It was the first high level orchestra I'd ever played in. They would hire these ringers, who were Juilliard students, to come and augment, especially the bass section. There were never enough bass players, and it was at one of these concerts that I met Stanley Hall. And Stanley was like this six foot two, skinny, gangly black kid who was just an incredible bass player and a Juilliard undergrad student. And he was one of the ringers. And he came and we played this concert and we were doing these rehearsals. And he's like, "Hey, you know what? You're pretty good. Who 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 is your teacher?" I'm like, "Oh, you know what? I don't have a teacher." He's like, "What? How could you not have a teacher? That's that's crazy." He's like, I've never met anyone who plays like you, and the fact that you don't have a teacher and this is all self-taught, this is really incredible. He says, you know, in all my life, I've never come across anyone who who has this kind of talent. He's like, I, I want you need a teacher, and I want to introduce you to, to uh, this teacher I know. And that's how I met Homer Mensch. Homer was this icon of bass teaching and bass playing. You know the Jaws soundtrack. Da na, da na. That's Homer. He's a first call studio player in New York. Also on the faculty of Juilliard pre college and Juilliard College. And uh, I show up at Homer Mensch's apartment, and I go up and. Uh, he was already older. He must have been 60s. Very, like, calm, gravelly voice. Well, hello there. I hear Stanley speaks very highly of you. And he says, you don't have a teacher. He says, come into my studio. And uh, he's like, here, you can play on this bass. And he, he, he lets his students play on his, his, his instruments. He had this incredible collection of old, very beautiful Italian instruments. Some stuff I'd never seen in life, much less played on. So I just, I played this cadenza for him. And he's like, oh, oh, okay. And, and, and who is your teacher? And I'm like, no, I don't have a teacher. And he's like, okay, well, you need a teacher. In order to get to the next level, you need a teacher. You're very talented. And uh, he gave me a couple of lessons and I think they must have been free because we certainly, there is no way I could have afforded them. And uh, the summer came, and at some point, uh, Homer called me and he's like, okay, so what are your plans for the fall? Well, you know, I can't really afford to, to take any more private lessons with you, I'm sorry. He's like, hey, hey listen, uh, Juilliard has this pre-college program, uh, and uh, they have scholarships. And I want you to audition. And, and I got in. And uh, the tuition was probably like 2500 and 
I mean, we didn't have the money. Uh, Olegna Fuski was the director back then. By like the second semester, I'd gotten this bill. There was like some balance of the tuition, which I couldn't pay, which wasn't covered. And like in January, when I got, I went to Olegna, I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to withdraw because I, we can't afford this thousand dollar balance. And Olegna, I will never forget. She's like, you know what? Don't worry. We're going to cover it. And you just keep coming. If Oleg, I know she's out there somewhere. I will never forget that. High school, senior year of high school. I mean, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. Homer, Homer wanted me to go. Homer Mensch, he also taught at Yale, and he's like, you know what, you you should go to Yale because then you can study with me and you can do an undergrad degree. I went to Stuyvesant High School, this public high school, and uh, the bottom line is I didn't get into Yale. I didn't know what I was. I got into University of Chicago, but at that point I was just like, I don't even want to go to college. And I sent back the little postcard that said, you know, I'm turning down the offer. And middle of the night, like 10 p.m. one night, uh, my brother, surgical resident, comes back home to Queens from his busy job, gets me up out of bed and is like, what is this I hear about you not going to college? I'm like, well, you know, I didn't get into Yale and I can't study with Homer. I don't know. He's like, this is nonsense. I'm going to call University of Chicago and tell them that you're coming. Yeah, that's how I ended up going to University of Chicago. As a physics major, that was the only other thing. That was the, the subject which I kind of liked. You know, I got hundreds in all the tests, and I, I liked it. It was interesting. You know, I got through Stuyvesant High School without ever really working. Just sort of breezed right through it and got to U of C, and suddenly there were all these kids who were just brilliant. And I was miserable, and I hated it. Got straight Cs. At the end of the semester, I'm like, you know, I really don't want to be here. Um, music is what I really like what I love and it was maybe December and I called up Homer Homer had been was really disappointed because he wanted me to study music I'm like Mr. Mensch I I think I've made a mistake I, I want to study music is there is there any way that I could come to Juilliard he's like oh okay let me see what I can do and, and then I told my mom and my brother, it's always my brother, and he's like, what? You want to transfer? You want to go to Juilliard? Wait a second. And he, he called up Homer Mensch, and he, he went to visit him. So the conversation, which I didn't know at the time, I didn't even know we had met him. It wasn't until many years later, he's like, Homer, uh, Windsor goes up to Homer and is like, listen, my brother wants to leave University of Chicago and come study music. I just need to ask you, is he... Is he really talented enough to, to do music? And according to Windsor, Homer told him, you know, no, Jess is one of the most talented bass players I've ever met. And when he heard that, he was like, okay. So I started in January, and uh, I don't think I really understood what Juilliard was like. Juilliard is very regimented. And... The background I had was completely undisciplined, self-taught. I played whatever I wanted. 
So I went into Juilliard just wanting to only play cello music. This was in the early 1980s, and that was just not the way. You know, 1983, 1984, there really wasn't a pathway to be a solo bass player. I love playing music, but there was always that struggle between what I wanted to do and what the prescribed pathways for a double bassist were. You take auditions, you get an orchestral job, maybe you start at a secondary orchestra in Columbus, and you can work your way up to tenure at one of the big five, right? That's like the ideal pathway. I'm like, no, that's, that's not for me. That's not what I want. And uh, yeah, it's always my brother. Like my brother, like meets with me and he's like, so what are you going to do? You know, you're finishing your master's program. This is at the end of the year, or maybe in the fall semester of my second year of the master's program. He's like, you're not taking any auditions. You don't have a job. You have no prospects. What are you going to do, Jess? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, listen, you're a smart kid. There, there is this pre-medical, post-baccalaureate pre-medical program at Columbia where you know what, you, you could go to medical school. At least it's a job, it's a steady income. Why don't you just take a couple of classes and see how you do? And, and that's what I did. I mean, it wasn't like I had this burning desire to be a doctor. It was more like, well, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I did, then did general surgery and plastic surgery training at Columbia University of Pittsburgh, did a hand microsurgical fellowship at Hospital for Special Surgery, and then ended up back at Mount Sinai in New York doing plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery. And I specialized in breast reconstruction after mastectomy. Mount Sinai decided to start a program, which was the first of its kind in New York, to offer gender confirmation surgery for people who are transgender. And they asked me if I would learn how to do those operations and help start this program. And I was like, um, okay, it sounds interesting. Well, and I spent six months traveling around the world. It's not something you learn in plastic surgery training. The operations are unique, right? Uh, making a man a woman, a woman a man, there's nothing like that anywhere in the world in plastic surgery training. So I had to travel. I went to Belgium, London, San Francisco, and we started this program in 2016. And in the beginning, I thought it would just be one other thing that I would do in addition to regular plastic surgery. But because this was the first time this had been offered in New York City, New York State, really, there was this incredible pent-up demand for these operations. And within a few weeks of starting our program, without even advertising, just by word of mouth, we were getting hundreds of phone calls and couldn't even make appointments. We just started taking lists of people who wanted surgeries, ended up with several hundred people on a wait list. And that just convinced me right away that I could no longer spend any time doing anything else. Like, how can I go back and do plastic surgery when we have 500 people on a wait list who've waited their whole lives for surgery. How would I justify that? There's no way, right? This, this is more urgent. And so I gave up plastic surgery and devoted myself to doing gender confirmation surgery. That's incredible. So I'm curious with, with the career you've had in medicine, how do you feel that your 
your background in training in music is, has impacted you? You know, I get that question a lot. And, uh, you know, the typical answer is, well, you know, the discipline, learning how to practice, and these work habits, or this, this ephemeral supposed connection between music and medicine. I mean, I don't know. I've thought about it a little bit. I think for me, as a bass player, wanting to play solo music, I always felt like I could never be my authentic musical self just because of the constraints of the music world. And when I started doing this operation and patients would come to me and like, you know what, for my whole life, I felt like I was someone else. and I just couldn't be that person. I think, I personally think that my background as a bass player, it, it just made me more empathic to that. And these operations where you can help someone be your most authentic self and the best version of yourself, I mean, that's like me. I've always wanted to be a solo bass player and never could. You know, when I left Juilliard, like January, I really didn't go back. I, I think I went back for some tests. I left my bass in my Juilliard locker and I never touched it again for 20 years. I left my bass, my bow, and my skateboard. I was a big skateboarder. <laughs> it was like I closed that chapter of my life, the skateboarding bass player. I used to skateboard down Broadway with like my bass on my back. And the bass that I left in my locker, it was like this abandoned school instrument that I stole from my high school. It was broken. I, I fixed it myself. It was like all cracked. I took the top off. You know, which is a very difficult thing. This is like in high school. Like I was, I would ask anyone, hey, how, how, how do you repair those cracks? There's a special kind of glue, hide glue. And I saved up enough money to get hide glue. And you need like these little wooden cleats. Couldn't afford that. I would go to the paint store. You know, those, those paint stirrers you get for free. I would cut those into the cleats. And I repaired this whole base. And then I, uh, I sanded the finish off because it said like New York City public school all over. It couldn't have that. I had this this white base and I never bothered to refinish it. So if you ask people, people may remember me at Juilliard for having that white base. And then at some point, uh, you know, the volute for the scroll had broken off and it kept breaking off. Eventually I just left it off. So my, my scroll ended in a point. It was a white base that ended in a point. But it was, a, it was an incredible base. It sounded amazing. Anyway, I left it in the locker. They threw it away. They told me they just threw it away. Well, I, I, I missed it. All the, I would dream all the time. I would have this recurring dream that I was playing the bass. And after a while, I begin to like worry, gosh, you know what? I, I want to play, but I, what if I can't play anymore? It's been 10 years, and then it's 15 years, then it's 20 years. And will I be able to pick it up again? I literally haven't touched it in 20 years. A lot of anxiety. And then, uh, I don't know, one day I'm just like, you know what, let's not be on our deathbed regretting this. It's the one thing that you ever really, truly loved that you did for yourself. It's like, I'm going to start playing again. And now I play. I play every day. 
I play in this amazing amateur orchestra called Camerata Nocturna. Uh, we have a concert next Saturday doing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is bucket list for me. Never played it. Oh my God, such a joyful experience playing Beethoven's Ninth. Dr. Ting's team at Mount Sinai has performed more than 2,000 transgender surgeries. That's among the most of any hospital in the world. Thanks for listening. For more of the After Arts podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.